So um, I'm, I realize I'm coming in on your chapter three of The Emotional Healthy Spirituality, written by Peter Scazzaro. Who, who's on that course? I think you're running a course right now, aren't you, Colin? Yeah, okay. So the rest of you are part of this preaching series, but not actually on the course. Are you going to keep running it, or is this a one-off? Okay, so this is becoming your discipleship material. Wow, that's tremendous. So, yeah, because I was really uh, impressed by Peter and Jerry Scazzaro. Scazzaro, that's a name I've never quite got my tongue around. Uh, you know, their story and what they have put together out of their experiences. So chapter three is about breaking the power of the past. But I feel the Holy Spirit has talked quite strongly initially about why we do this kind of work, why we do, you know, take the effort to try to understand ourselves and try to understand where our reactions come from and how they can be changed. Um, and it's hard, it's hard work. And usually we are motivated by all sorts of things. So I'll come on that in just a moment. And this work is about that iceberg, 10% shows, 90% is under the water. We're probably not aware of it ourselves. And that's what we're doing. We're becoming aware of what's hidden in our lives or unconscious, not known about and that actually has a very powerful influence on, um, oh, there's my slides, oh, great, has a very powerful influence on our behavior, our emotions, and our interactions with other people. So let's just, let's just focus our hearts, and I'm just going to really ask God, and please pray with me. We're in this together. I'm one of you. I haven't got it all together. I'm on this discipleship journey along with you. Believe me. So, Father, we come as your children. We're beyond grateful for Jesus, who is the human face of Almighty God. Lord, we thank you for the grace that called him into the embodiment of your word, into taking on our humanity, that he could take it to the cross, die in our place break the debt, break the power of sin and death and Satan over our lives. Bring us into your grace, into the wonderful river of life that flows from your throne, into all of who you are, the goodness of our Father, making us your children in your grace and your power. Thank you for giving us a born-again experience of belonging to Jesus. And Holy Spirit, we know you're the one who takes the work of Jesus and applies it to our lives. And we invite you, we invite you, Lord, to come with your truth and help us today. Amen. So I'm going to kind of do this in three parts. Um, we're going to have a look at why do we do this work. And then we're going to take a look at going back to go forward and Joseph's example. Uh, I might not get that far, so please bear with me. You've got the book, you've got the course, you'll have the opportunity. But that's where we're going today. So why do we do this kind of work? You know, we come sometimes into looking for help because of crisis. 
um, because of pain in our lives, because things have gone badly wrong, because uh, we want things to be better and different. Um, we might come because of a sense of stuckness. We keep repeating the same cycles, and we don't know how to break that or get out of that. And there's, these are quite strong motivations, but you've set your course for a very long-term goal, which is, you know, we're called to be disciples for life. This, this isn't a course you're doing for a few weeks, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. This is a lifestyle call to be disciples of Jesus. So we need to be sure we've got the right motivation. And, you know, there are a couple of things that um, shame and pain and failure actually may get us into this stream of change. But what sustains that is something I've taken from a wonderful old prophetic voice from the 1900s, which is the last century now, <laughs> seems weird, um, called Bob Jones. And Bob Jones had a death experience and went to heaven and stood in the queue to uh, be welcomed into heaven, he hoped. Some were going the wrong way, some were going the right way. When he got to stand before Jesus, Jesus asked him one question, and it wasn't, what have you done? It wasn't, how did you serve me? This was the question he asked him. He said, did you learn to love? Did you learn to love? And that's what Bob Jones carried throughout his very powerful ministry. He was uh, uh, sort of like a prophetic evangelist. Had a, there were a lot of signs and wonders and miracles that attended his ministry. But, you know, he never felt hugely impressed by that. This is what guided him. This was his motivation. Did you learn to love? And, you know, God's eyes are on our hearts. Um, in Samuel, talks about, um, you know, his eyes are roaming throughout the earth to see if there's anyone whose heart is tender towards him, whose heart seeks him. And Matthew talks about that as well. So... Um, we, 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 part of this, of uh, seeking this to answer this question before the throne of God one day, did you learn to love, is understanding that it was love that was broken in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned. It was love that they turned away from, and hearts were broken. Their hearts were broken. Their relationships were broken. God's heart was broken in some senses. I mean, I'm not quite sure. We don't want to humanize God. But there was a, a heartbrokenness in God in that moment. And God is here restoring our souls and healing our hearts. And the, the quality of our relationships determines the quality of our lives. It's not about what we do. It's about how we love how we love God, how we love one another, how we receive the love of God to love ourselves and to love others. And I'm reminded of the ancient old Apostle John, you know, the disciple who leaned up against the chest of Jesus as, as at the Last Supper we've just broken bread. You know, John was leaning up against this man, his great friend that he really loved. And uh, when he was a very, very old man, I believe in his 90s, he was carried into the churches where he was pastoring. And he would say, little children, love one another. 
for love is of God. And the, the whole of his um, um, first, um, first letter is about the love of God and about the truth and love that God brings and about how sin brings darkness and breaks that love. So this is the question that we will be asked, not, you know, with all due respect, not how many churches did you plant, not, but did you learn to love? And that is a very um, powerful motivation that will carry us through the ups and downs and the struggles and difficulties that doing this kind of work entails. And I, I, God took me back to Genesis where he first made man because he, in his making of man, he, excuse me using that, I know that's a bit non-PC, but just you know what I mean, mankind, whatever. But he started off with man. And um, I love these the verse in Genesis 2, 7, where it describes how God had gathered together the earth and created this, this clay person uh, representing man. And then it says, and then God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul. And the wonder of that is we will always be what uh, there's a wonderful um, American preacher called Miles Monroe. Some of you may have heard him. He died tragically in, the, I think, 2015, somewhere around there. And he used to speak uh, about our dual nature, that we are dirt bodies, he would say. You are dirt bodies filled with the Spirit of God. And that's what God made us originally, that out of this clay, this fragile material, this uh, natural stuff, he breathed his life. And that's the breath of life came and Adam became a living being. And we'll always carry that dual nature that we are both clay with the spirit of God in us. Um, and, but that... Uh, it, it, when, so I, I'm going to tie this in a little bit later to how we have natural human emotions and drives and yearnings and longings that go with our clayness. Do you see what I'm saying? Our kind of natural humanity. But there is also the supernatural humanity that has come to us through the Spirit, through our Lord Jesus Christ, in our born-again nature, so that the natural emotions that we have as human beings, filled with the power of God, become supernatural. And we are restored to some extent to what God originally intended, that we would live in the love and the goodness and the power of God. These dirt bodies, or as I think Oswald Chambers talks about, dust and deity. And so this is how God meant us to live, filled with his spirit, in union with him, in love with him. And out of that flows this river of love to the world around us, to the people around us, into our own hearts. And it comes with the fruit of the spirit. 
And we know from uh, Galatians what those fruits are, uh, that what the flavors of those, that fruit is, love, joy, peace, patience. Aren't these the things we yearn for? Don't we yearn for love and peace and patience? We heard this morning about the joy of the Lord. And, but this is not, these are supernatural gifts. These are over and above what we have in our human emotions. And this is what was restored to us through being born again. We receive again that life of God that brings us back into the fullness of bearing the fruit of the Spirit in our emotions. The wonder of this is that um, having lost that through sin, through the fall, through the brokenness of what happened in the garden, we now come into something called redemption and everlasting life. And it's more than what was lost in Adam. It is we will come into a fullness of life in the time to come when we will not sin again. Won't that be great? Won't that be great? You won't be able to sin. And you'll be in a world where there is no sin. And so the things that beset us now will no longer be there. But we already have the seed of that within us. We have something of that within us. So when we have troublesome emotions, this is where God calls us to go. And I'm telling you this because... Um, the motivation of being those who carry the love of God rather than trying to do spectacular things. We carry the love of God and we allow God to work in our lives and through our lives in such a way that we're able to carry more and more of that love as he deals with the cycles of sin and brokenness in us. And you know, this is what Jesus fought for in the garden um, when he took that lonely journey into the Garden of Gethsemane just before he died. And he was so aware of his humanness in that moment. Um, and he said, I'm full of dread. And, and this is the Son of God, guys. This is the one who's made heaven and earth, who holds all things together. And yet he's almost overwhelmed with the dread of what lies before him. I don't know what that dread was, whether it was a supernatural thing or whether it was about his own human uh, ability to endure um, exactly what he knew was coming, but he took himself into the garden and he got before his father and he prayed and he prayed until the strength of God came from heaven and strengthened him. And when he came out of the garden, he came out in the fullness of his sonship and in the power and the authority of the spirit to such an extent that the soldiers who came to arrest him fell to the ground in front of him because of this glory and presence and power that he carried, having worked through that dread to come into that place of supernatural enablement that came from his father. This is what we're doing when we do these courses. We are coming to God before God to have him change the natural patterns that we've learned from the past, that we've absorbed from our cultures. Loads of different cultures here. How many, how many cultures do you have in your church? 
20 plus. Oh my, it's fantastic. You know, and we carry baggage from our cultures. We carry history. We carry history from our families. We carry history from our own lives. And not everything that we suffer from is because of us. Some of it has been inherited. Some of it lands on us because, you know, in, when, G, when God gave his commandments, he said, I'm a jealous God. And if you give yourself to false gods, the sin will follow down to the third and fourth generation. And there is a sense where there has been uh, false religions and other forms of idolatry and brokenness and murder and hatred and violence. These things travel down through the generations. And especially where there are secrets and where are there, there are things that we have not dealt with and we don't know about, these things travel down through the unconscious, um, sort of, they call it the, um, you know, the, the conscious, the unconscious uh, awareness that travels down in cultures. And by unconscious, they simply mean we're not aware of it. And that's what you're doing in this. By going down into that 90% below the surface, you're becoming aware of what is driving your behavior from your natural humanness and from the legacies that you've inherited from the past. Are you, are you with me? Are you getting what I'm saying? Give me a nod if you are. Yeah. And that's the struggle of Jesus in the garden was to come out of his natural experience as a human being and to receive from his father the fullness of what he needed to face this horrendous ordeal that was before him, the greatest test of his life. And Joseph too, and we probably won't get that far, I'm just looking at the time. Joseph too, um, you know, he... He had such a strong love for God, and I think it was to do with the love of his own father, although he was probably a bit of a spoilt brat, let's face it, and a bit immature and pretty arrogant and as a 17-year-old sharing these fabulous dreams he was having with his brothers. Um, you know, he was probably a bit full of himself. Um, but be, going from that place into the slavery in Egypt at that time, I'm not sure that would have been a great place, but he learned lessons that humbled him, matured him, and made him the man that he became when he stood before Pharaoh 12 or 13 years later. That was the season of testing that God took him through. And he made choices during that time as did Jesus in the garden. Was he going to be a victim of his past? Or was he going to become a blamer of God and a blamer of his brothers and a blamer of others, even maybe of his mother who died when he was six, giving birth to his brother? You know, and kids carry these scars. And we will carry scars and traumas from experiences that we've had. And these experiences, because we're kids at the time, we arrive at beliefs about ourselves, about life, about what we've got to be like in order to make life work that we carry into our adulthood. But it's childish thinking. And Paul tells us we need to put away the childish things and the childish thinking in order to become mature. This is what Joseph did as a slave and then in prison. 
rather than yielding to the temptation to feel sorry for himself as a victim, and he had been wronged, he had been seriously wronged, uh, or become blaming and uh, shaming. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to move on with my slides because I've got a good slide on that. This is just a picture that I, I was so struck with how sin shatters. Sin shatters hearts, shatters relationships, and God's putting it all back together. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. That's what Jesus came to do, to heal what was destroyed through sin, death, and Satan. I don't mind uh, telling you that. I could tell you that all, all, um, all day. So I want to find where I've written about this. Um, this is the reaction that <coughs> demonstrates the victim or the blamer options that lie before us when we are hurt, when we, when we experience trauma, when we experience all sorts of disruptions and pain and, and being misunderstood, all the kind of things that happen to us in life that hurt. We have an option. Do we allow the shame of that to become this flame inside, this sense of, of pain, of rage, of anger, of, of hurt, whatever that makes up. It's kind of in myself, it's like a sickening feeling. And uh, all our feelings are very physical. And then we blame. And we blame outwardly to those who have hurt us. Or we blame inwardly ourselves. And we become our own worst critics. And we beat ourselves up. And we become, in the extreme, suicidal. So... This cycle of shame and the flame of it uh, because of our failure, because of our brokenness, because our flaws are seen, because we're not what we should be and we've behaved badly becomes that flaming sense of shame and then we blame either ourselves or outwardly we blame God and neither Jesus nor Joseph and a lot of other people in scripture avoided this. And I love that verse in, in um, Hebrews that says, Jesus scorned the shame. Shame is always about our identity, and shame is about our heart. Shame shrivels us, you know, shrinks us up inside. And it tells us that we are sinful, broken, nasty, ugly people. And although that may be true <laughs> in some senses, in other senses, God has united himself with us made us alive together with Christ, and we are no longer that. We are no longer that. And our behavior doesn't determine that. That's been determined by God. Before God, we are beloved. We're seen as we are going to be one day. He has that love that hopes the best and sees the best in us, and he knows he's got the power to perform that. It isn't even us who have to do that. He will do that. So this cycle we break by getting before God and refusing the temptation to be those who've been, who dwell on the, on the ways in which we've been wronged and who uh, harbor revenge and um, blaming of others um, rather than making a U-turn. I've just lost my track a little bit. 
Um, this is what we inherit. Murder, war, revenge. This is, the, this is the rotten apple that we eat as kids and that we've come into and that comes through our generations and that God brought us out of through the new birth into this filling in the spirit. As sinful family legacies block the flow of God's love. That's what we are concerned about. So we go back, we go under the surface to find out what's happened in our lives and what have we inherited from the past that breaks the flow of God's love. And the genogram, is this, is this working? Yeah. Are, we, are we on track? How are we for time? The genogram is, which is one of the exercises in, um, quoted in the EHS book, The Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, um, is a tool that enables us to trace patterns of family uh, relationships right back through the third and fourth generation. <laughs> if you can do it that far back, that's great. And it helps you to see where the broken relationships are and where the things are that you might have inherited from your background. And I'm just going to think about a few of those things that break, break the flow of God's love in our lives. So um, there are many, many things. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I do a lot of training. I really like training. But preaching a sermon is a bit different because at this point, I'd kind of say to you, what kind of things from your background that aren't about you so much, but that you inherited, that you know impede, hurts you still, or impedes the love of God in your life. Does anybody feel like saying anything? <coughs> so, wars. I worked recently with a woman, <coughs> and I'm going to be careful here, uh, I always mix and match all the people I've seen, so you won't be able to trace this. But I worked with a woman who came from a culture, from a race that had been severely per uh, persecuted and suffered genocide. And she carried a legacy from her father that drove her behavior ruthlessly. She was relentlessly driven. She could barely sleep. She was always an incredibly bright woman. Uh, and, and a very, very prolific uh, producer of um, all sorts of uh, courses, uh, helping people as refugees, and, oh, I mean, just huge number of things. And, um, but she carried this belief that her father had had when he was facing death and fortunately avoided it somehow, was one of the few that escaped and the belief was, if I don't fight, I'll die. And so this, all this fighting energy was at work in her all the time, that she had to keep fighting, she had to keep working, she had to keep producing, and she could never rest. She could never rest. And, you know, until those things are discovered and broken, we are driven by those messages that weren't, weren't hers. She didn't. She inherited that from her dad. Um, wars. So some of you, uh, my dad uh, was served in the First World War. Um, he had some active service, then he worked as an engineer. 
um, on, uh, you know, fixing aircraft and instruments. He was an instrument maker in the aircraft and so forth. Uh, he carried a, a real hatred of conflict, and it became such a driving force in his life that he became a real pacifist. And so he would never do conflict in the home. So we never learned in our home how to resolve conflict. And, you know, if you fear conflict, which many of us do, I still carry that. I hate it when people are oppositional to me or they're angry. You know, I feel myself tense up because I don't know how I might get hurt by what they say or do. And he carried this to such an extent that you know, I remember between his mum, my mum and him, uh, they would never resolve their issues. He would just go into silence and passive aggression, and she would go into depression. And so the conflicts between them were never resolved. You know, how we do anger, how we do conflict, these are things we inherit from both our background and our family. I'm just going to give you a few, a few more little stories, and then we'll just quickly think about how we break these habits, because they are habits. And habits are things that we do automatically because we've stopped thinking about how we do them. You know, you learn to drive a car. Um, you learned, I learned to drive a manual car. Clutch, um, gear, you know, release the crash, put the down on the accelerator. And you're kind of speaking it to yourself till it becomes automatic. And then it, when it becomes automatic, you, you, you know, I can drive from... Uh, where I live to see a friend of mine without even knowing I've done it. <laughs> that's, what, that's what habits are, and that's how emotional habits work. And these are the habits that we have caught up from our family and from our backgrounds that we've never examined what's under the surface. What are, what are the thoughts that drive this? Like this woman who was driven by this belief, if I stop fighting, I'll die. You know, and there are lots of other, other situations like that that drive our behaviours. I mean, there are too many to list, and you will know what they are in your life. And with the genogram, I'm just going to skip some of my term slides. With the genogram, it can be an overwhelming tool. There's a lot of information that can come out of that. And what I would suggest is that you pick one thing, one thing maybe that troubles you most, that you know you will benefit most from dealing with and allow God to work with you through that rather than trying to eat the whole elephant in one go. Is this making sense? So the genogram will help you go back. So, for instance, in my life... Um, my mum uh, was in London throughout the, the war, the, the World War II. She lived in London. She was there during the Blitz. Um, and I believe that uh, I, she never spoke about this. You know, this is the other thing. We carry legacies when they're secrets, family secrets that are never spoken about, things that have happened, tragedies, broken marriages, children who've died, um, you know, disreputable, disreputable family members who became alcoholic or were unacceptable in the family and were driven out and, and ignored and feuds that... <laughs> Hello? 
feuds that never get resolved. Um, so, yeah, I'm just going to go forward to how we do this. So once we are aware of what we want to actually work on is to stop before we've repeated the habit and to start to think about how we got here and what we want to do differently. Do it, did any of you see that film, Little Woman, Little Women? Yeah, there's a beautiful part, I'm not sure it comes up in the film, in the, in the book, where Mommy, who had a very quick temper, actually learned to stop, count to 10, and then choose to respond. And I'll take you through a little process in a moment. And that's where we need to begin with these automatic emotional and relational habits that cause us problem, that block the flow of God. And um, so just, you see, I've got a whole load of things here. The, the, the things we'll be looking for, repetitions in our lives, stuck places, um, premature or... Uh, um, untimely deaths, the, uh, the kind of things that rolled down through the families in the, among the patriarchs were, were lying and infidelity and marriage disputes and sibling rivalry and then hatred and then the attempted murder of Joseph. Um, other things are unresolved griefs that are never spoken about and never dealt with. Um, stuck places and dead ends, highly charged emotional things, things to do with health and poverty. And uh, so we start with that sense of we stop. How do I go back, Colin? There, we stop. And we break this cycle that we've mentioned before. And we make a U-turn. I like that one. We make a U-turn. Rather than being the victim or the blamer, we make a turn inwardly and we ask the Holy Spirit to help us unfold the past until all is told. I love that verse. And this is the process if we move from the reactive. Habits are reactive. Do you know what I'm saying? That when something triggers our anger and we react with anger before we even know it, that's reactive. Or we react with anxiety or we react with self-blame or blaming of others. And we need to catch that at that moment, stop at that moment and become reflective. And I know that as you go through this course, you'll have lots of opportunities to learn how to become more and more self-reflective. This is not a neurotic self-absorption, a meism. It's not, you know, it's not to do with... Um, you know, about me just sorting myself out. This is about being reflective for a purpose in order to become responsive. And that responsiveness is where the love of God is evidenced in our behavior rather than in the reactiveness of habits. <clears throat> 